This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. As the era of the American McMansion passed, real estate markets in various parts of the country are dealing with that issue. There are too many large, high-end homes on the market and not enough buyers for these properties. Many of these homes were bought or built by baby boomers who find, as they get older, their needs have changed. But younger generations don't seem to want to be saddled to these big properties because of various factors, including finances, different tastes, or the desire to be closer to metropolitan centers. Joining us to take a look at this issue right now, Benjamin Keyes, assistant professor in the real estate department here at the Wharton School, as well as a faculty research fellow with the National Bureau of Economic Research. And also joining us on the phone, Dal Myers, who's a professor of policy, planning, and demography at the University of Southern California's Price School of Public Policy. He's also director of the Popular Dynamics Research Group there. Ben, great seeing you again. Yeah, thanks for having Thank me. Thank you. Dal, great to have you with us today. Uh, good morning. Thank you. Uh, so give us your sense of, of, of why this is occurring right now, Ben. Well, I, I think it, you know, it doesn't take an economist to point out the disconnect between supply and demand in a lot of these markets. And what we're really seeing, in some sense, is just an unwillingness of a lot of owners to recognize some losses. So uh, when you hear the the kinds of statistics out there about uh, how many unsold houses there are, um, that means unsold at the price that the the owners are listing, that the owners are expecting. And so if a a family member or friend said, oh, you know, I have this house on the market and it just won't sell – uh, there's a pretty obvious solution, which is to cut the price. So I think in a lot of these markets, and we're going to kind of dive into both sides of the supply and the demand here, but I think in a lot of these markets, what you have is a, a real demand shortage for these types of large houses. And uh, you know, owners are just not uh, willing to kind of recognize the losses on this. And there's been great research on this dating back um, quite a long time, um, what, uh, what economists have called nominal loss aversion, which is uh, you don't want to sell the house for less than what you paid for it, um, that uh, there's some sort of mental barrier there to sort of recognize that loss, even though the loss isn't necessarily uh, an accurate of reflection of, of losses because um, you lived in the house for a long time, you got something out of it in, in yeah. terms of consuming it, and instead of paying rent, um, because the price index has certainly changed from relative from when you bought it. And you've probably put a lot of money into the property as well in terms of upkeep, maintenance, all those types of things. But people just really resist this idea of um, taking a loss uh, on selling a house. And I think that that's uh, one of the barriers to helping clear the market. Dow, your thoughts? Well, those are excellent points there. Uh, I think you know demand depends on the number of people we have who are ready to go. And the problem is we're inside this big generational housing bubble, I call it, the baby boomers, as they moved up the ranks, you know, from age 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 to 60, they moved to bigger and bigger houses. Behind them is the undersized Generation X. Those are the buyers who are supposed to step up and buy the boomers' houses immediately. You know, following after them, there's not enough of them. Uh, and so that is not a favorable supply and demand balance right there in the generations. If you add to that um, the, uh, the changing preferences to be closer into the middle of the city, any um, big houses that are built further out are going to be the last ones to be desired, and they're going to, they're, their prices are going to go soft. And Professor Key is exactly right, I think. Uh, the, the loss aversion is, is really holding people. They, they, they've already built them already, and then they over-prettify them with their own personal amenities. Yeah. And the new buyers come in, they want to redo the kitchen anyway. So yeah. it's been overbuilt, uh, and that's why they're they're so soft. I think it, it is interesting because because Ben, as this is all kind of played out, I, you would think 
that higher priced homes in general are going to be on the market longer anyway, because the number of people that would be looking to buy them is probably going to be a smaller number to begin with. That's right. I mean, there's just a smaller pool of people who can afford a a really expensive house. And so I think, you know, this is even adjusting for that fact, which is that higher priced houses do tend to stay on the market longer. I mean, it's interesting sort of looking at the dynamics of the, the housing boom and busts. A lot of the volatility was in um, in lower-priced houses and some lower-priced neighborhoods. There were new buyers coming into some of these markets that previously couldn't obtain credit. And so you saw sort of bigger house price fluctuations in some of those spaces. And I think now we're bumping into a different set of tensions along the lines uh, that Dowell raised, which which is really this disconnect between uh, what young buyers want and what older owners have. And I think um, you know, there's there's a there's going to be some interesting pressures there and interesting dynamics. I, I'm yeah. curious to see whether um, preferences truly have changed um, and sort of for the long haul, or whether they're just delayed, which is sort of different. So some of this may be that those houses will be desirable, but not to people in their late 20s, but instead to people in their late 30s or, right. or their 40s, and that's sort of reflective of a much longer trend in delayed marriage and delayed childbearing, and sort of the prevalence of two earner households and other things that are. Uh, different features in the millennial generation relative to to the boomers. Dow? Well, um, one of the big components of demand that could step up if we allowed them to is immigrant population. They're the ones that seem to favor the bigger houses more for multi-generational living and the like. Uh, And they are increasingly moving out in the suburbs. But uh, our flow, inflow, is not, it's being stymied right now. (laughs) And in the past, it's it's been a pretty big share of the growth in, in homeowner demand. Uh, but now it's kind of leveled off, um, so that's that's not helping us. I, I've been looking at the delay, the delay of millennials uh, in particular. Um, I have a, an article, you know, Peak Millennial, that looked at that, and now a new one, Housing Economics, on um, the millennial delay in, in home buying. And uh, it's the big, it's the next big generation, but it's it's too young still, and they are they are, they've been held back in the beginning because of the recession. You know, they just had a slow start, but they are rapidly rising in, in home buying. But they don't want to live way out there. And so the, those, loca- those big McMansions far out are just misplaced. Um, they're going to have to wait a while to find a buyer maybe. But it is interesting, Dal, and I've seen a couple of reports uh, about this, that that gap that kind of came into play is, is maybe starting to ease just a little bit as those millennials you know, get into their mid-30s. Uh, they decide to get married. They want to start to have kids. And they realize that maybe the city isn't for them and – and they do want to finally eventually move out to the suburbs, but it's that gap, that 10-year, 12-year, 15-year, whatever that number is, uh, that, that has really had an impact on, on the housing market as a whole. Well, well, a McMansion that's in a good school district will attract young families. Right. But the right. boomers, they didn't have kids, and they built in these places that maybe um, you know, they don't have good schools, and so they're missing the connection there. Ben? I think that's a great point. I mean, if you think of the amenities that, that draw people to the suburbs, uh, schools are probably first and foremost, sure. uh, the, the biggest draw. Um, certainly safety and um, having a yard and some of the other amenities for sure, um, parks and other things. But it really comes down to the schools. And so, you know, to the extent that these properties were being built in far out locations where um, school districts were still sort of forming or to the extent that um, – you know, that, that the, the types of households being built, especially in the more recent years by older boomers where they were less uh, c- concerned about the quality of the schools, right. um, that's going to create a really, a really big disconnect. I think, you know, one thing I wanted to tie back to, though, um, and this is sort of in, in relation to a point that Dow raises that, um, you know, e- even, 
even with this uh, sort of millennial taste for the cities or millennial constraints for the cities and delayed, um, you know, delayed childbearing, delay, delayed marriage, you know, we're still really a suburban country. I was pulling up some of the statistics on this uh, this morning, so I, I bring you some facts. So, um, in a recent survey, uh, a very large survey, fifty-two uh, percent of people describe their neighborhood as suburban. Um, only 27% say urban uh, and 21% say rural. rural. Right. Uh, and so, you know, we, we are a suburban country, uh, majority suburban country in sure. terms of residents. And if you look at where the growth has been in these recent years, even despite this, the, the discussion about the urban renaissance, and, and this is really driven by um, a particular generation, I think, that has, has stayed in cities longer and then a slow trickle of baby boomers kind of moving back into cities – but um, suburbs, uh, both inner ring and outer ring suburbs, um, have grown twice as fast as urban areas in the last three or four years. Um, so there's still a lot of suburban growth. And I think this is being driven to the point that you raised about this older group of millennials who are now entering uh, into home buying yeah. uh, years uh, and have reached more stable employment situations coming out of the recession. But I think we, you know, we often um, sort of gloss over this idea, and we sort of maybe it's because we're sitting in the in the middle of uh, of Philadelphia here, on, on uh, and and I do this personally that um, you know that that um, everything is becoming urban, sure, uh, everything yeah. is becoming urbanized, and it's just not the case. So it's really this misalignment of amenities that I think uh, sort of come back to, comes back to the broader point, and whether those amenities can be better aligned with the things that the millennials have experienced in their longer times in the cities. Dow, in part, we, we've talked about this and we've seen reporting on this, talking about uh, issues with housing in the South, but out there on the West Coast and where you're seeing, you know, the, the, the average price of a home, which, in, you know, think of the Bay Area, which has skyrocketed in, in the last couple of years. Uh, how is, is this a significant problem on the West Coast? Well, we all think it is. Everybody who's trying to sell is facing that now because the market's gone soft. And all of our kids are trying to buy. We worry about them. Uh, yeah, it's a, the barriers to entry are getting pretty high. Um, it is worrisome. And I, and I think it's some kind of correction taking place now where uh, prices are going to cease their rise for a while. I don't think they're going to fall. But my colleagues say that they're going to stabilize and wait for incomes to catch up. Uh, again, the, the, the immigrant growth has been a, a big savior for us because um, they really have filled the gap in some high-priced areas. Uh, Chinese and Indian immigrants in particular seem to be able to bring the capital to buy those houses and put cash in uh, uh, native-born home sellers' pockets. So, uh, but uh, that, with that flow of immigrants uh, slowing down, it's, that's another soft spot in the, in the market it's really unclear what happens the next five years. I think this is a great point. I, I've been doing some work uh, and hoping to release a new a research paper soon looking at the the importance of uh, Chinese uh, investment in the U.S. housing market. Right. Um, and our preliminary results seem to suggest that since about 2012, um, neighborhoods and zip codes that had a high fraction of Chinese residents um, prior to 2012, the places where you might have immigrant enclaves and sort of uh, uh, networks of, you know, what are the places to buy, um, those places have seen a price growth of about 8 to, to 12 percent um, greater than the rest of sort of comparable neighborhoods um, in, even in the, same, uh, in the same cities. So, um, so I think that's a, a really important story and, and thinking through carefully one of the unintended consequences of um, restrictions on immigration and making, um, you know, things more difficult for immigrant communities. I think there's, 
you know, on this this broader point as well, this sort of this disconnect point. I mean, there's also a disconnect in terms of the size of these houses, and that's one of the things that's been emphasized, sort of critiquing the McMansion, McMansion style. You know, the house sizes have really sharply expanded um, over yeah. the last 25 or, or 30 years. Um, you know, I, I saw numbers that say median house, uh, median square footage have gone up by almost a thousand feet uh, over the last 50 years. So yeah. uh, when you think about that and you compare that, the fact that um, household uh, sizes have actually fallen, people are having fewer kids. Yeah. So more square footage, fewer kids. And again, this is where there's this disconnect. And I think. You know, this all comes back to tastes and preferences and how people want to put their families together. Um, and that just means that the houses that don't fit the, the families, uh, the prices are going to have to fall. But, Dow, what is this going to mean for the builders themselves? Because, you know, playing off of the numbers that, that Ben just gave, if if you're building bigger homes, yet you're having fewer people, it, it, this is seemingly going to continue to be an issue for the builders as well. It's It's been a conflict for some time. I mean, that, that, that disconnect between the size of the household and size of uh, the, the, the building has been going on for more than 20 years. Um, and it's been a big question mark all along. I, I have some relatives, I won't say who, they've engaged in this too, this overbuilding, over, oversized houses for just two people. Um, but the millennials, they seem to be really have a taste more for living more sparsely. They don't yeah. want as much furniture. They don't want as much space. Uh, it's interesting. Um, so the builders are watching that closely because that's the new market. The big problem is this. It's the easiest place to build is on the edge of the city, on the green fields. Why is that the easiest place? Because, well, land is, is less expensive, but there's also a lot less political resistance. If people want to live in the city and developers try to build there, well, that's where all the resistance is. Right. So we have this real conflict where, where that, that builders would like to build where the, where the demand is, but the, the current occupants block it. And it's a problem of democracy we got to solve pretty quickly here. And, and you're talking about a policy issue that, that obviously plays out uh, in, in some of the towns around the, the United States where you have <laughs> this – yeah, you have this property. And obviously yeah. the town wants to see it develop so that they can gain the tax revenue on it a, at some point. Yet they, they, they don't – you know, they're looking only at the, the potential positive financial perspective, not looking at the potential negative of, of not having somebody in that particular house yeah it's, it's uh, there's a, a lot of professors and economists bill um fischel in dartmouth he has a, a, a thesis he calls it the home voter thesis basically all the voters are aiming at, at protecting their house values and the problem is that all the voters already have a house and the people who don't have a house they don't get to vote i mean it's just a structural problem we don't we haven't solved it yet but somehow you have to, be able to represent the interests of the next generation in a way that we all know we need it, but individually, our self-interest is to maintain a restricted supply, drive prices up, and uh, get rich while everybody else, you know, begs for our house. That's uh, that's sort of been the game for the last decade or two. And, and it's hard, Ben, to break that self-interest model because of uh, you know the profitability issue. Yeah, I mean, if you think about. Um if you think about most households' portfolios, their house is probably their largest asset. Yeah. And yeah. so thinking about exposing that to additional risk in the form of more building um, is, is very daunting. And I think, 
you know, this is a challenge where, um, you know, the regulation is generally imposed at the very local level. And you think about minimum lot sizes in the suburbs, for instance, um, limitations on how tall buildings can be, um, you know, excessive control over uh, construction projects by local aldermen or city council members yep. um, who may have veto power of any development in their district. So there are a lot of local political barriers. And I think in some ways this is something that, you know, state or federal policies are going to have to push back on it as best they can. But this is a, a classic, you know, NIMBY kind of uh, uh, challenge that's really tough to overcome when you have a local uh, and very entrenched group of, of people with um, significant self-interest in the outcome. Dow? Well, the news from California is that maybe finally things are starting to crack here. Uh, there's a change in administration, a uh, new governor, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom, and with a new governor, they're always looking for new policies. And uh, meanwhile, the housing crisis has gotten to the top of the state agenda. It's never been there before as a top policy issue. And so there's just a plethora of legislative proposals. Uh, and whether they'll get past the local voters is still not known. Right. But there seems to be a groundswell of, of public support to, to, to finally generate more supply uh, in California. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at Biz Radio, B-I-Z Radio 132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Ben Keyes from the uh, Wharton School in the Real Estate Department joining me here in studio. Dal Myers at the University of Southern California joining us on the phone. Again, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at Biz Radio 132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So then how do you view, Ben, the, the, the home building industry right now? Uh, you know, we get the, the, the monthly report on home builder sentiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, how confident should they feel right now? I mean, there's been a lot of reporting in the last several months about whether or not home builders truly feel like they are in a positive frame of mind to, to be able to put on new projects right now. Yeah, it's been an interesting time to sort of take the temperature of the home builders. Uh, the second half of last year was really difficult yeah. uh, from from their standpoint, and that was a, especially because of rising interest rates. So interest rates were hovering right around 5% yep. for a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. Uh, rates have come down really sharply. So last week, um, Freddie Mac uh, reported that rates were down to just a little over 4%, uh, 406 um, for a 30-year fixed rate. So if you did buy in those last six months of last year, you might actually want to look into a quick refinancing. Uh, but I think the home builders have to be uh, uh, you know, um, enthusiastic about rates coming down. That's going to keep affordability um, in a better range for especially some of the millennials who have really been driving um, increases in home buying in the last couple of years. I think they really are going to struggle, though, with this disconnect that, that Dell has been pointing out about um, the ease of building in the in the suburbs or the exurbs versus um, where the jobs are located and where people want to live. And I think when you layer onto that, the the challenges that we've talked about in the past in terms of the cost of building. So first, there's these regulatory yeah. costs. And yeah. then you have the cost of labor, which has gone up considerably because, again, of immigration policy. And then you have right. trade policy that's affecting access to materials. Um, and all of those things are driving up the the base costs for uh, for building a property. And so, if you have a, a lot to develop, um, and you have all these fixed costs that you need to overcome, it's pretty natural that you're going to try to build the most expensive property that you can and the biggest property that you can 
on that particular lot. And so there's something about building and builder incentives that I think is a really key component to this trend of this sort of oversized McMansion. Yeah, Dal, you know, it's interesting because obviously a lot of there's a lot of conversation going on right now about uh, the trade and tariff issues between the United States and China. And part of that is also the fact that a lot of Chinese investors have pulled their money out or they've stopped investing money in the real estate market here in the United States you know, similar to what they were doing, uh, you know, five years ago, the, the amounts were were staggeringly high, and, and so it it has a filter down effect uh, on not only the investment but also the building process, the costs that are involved. Well, yeah, Ben can speak better to the Chinese investment uh, question. Uh, I've seen it on the ground here, and people have waved a million dollars cash in my face in the driveway. I was selling my house in 2012, so. They do exist, but it, but it also distorted the, 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 the housing market in the sense that if you didn't have all cash, you couldn't compete. The supply was so limited that the, the sellers would go for the all-cash offers. And so the poor millennial is trying to get a mortgage couldn't get a foothold. So that might be good to give, give uh, our homegrown millennials a chance to compete uh, in the mortgage market to, to buy houses. So they are, that's really the bright news is that the millennials are coming alive. Uh, we saw evidence that the homeownership rate ticked up finally uh, in t- 2017, is what the, the data showed. But we only saw it last last year. Uh, but the thing is, though, that, that my research of Fannie Mae has showed that actually the millennial homeownership has been rising since 2012. It just was submerged beneath the surface because they started from such a low level, they hadn't broken through the surface yet. But it's like a, a guided missile coming up. There, there, there's all this pent-up demand and as they cross age 30, uh, it's, you know, it's a rocket ship launching into the housing market. But because of the fact that even though we've had an economic recovery in this country, Ben, over the last several years, it hasn't been as strong as probably a lot of people would expect. Hence, the wage growth we haven't seen as much. And, and obviously, that, I think, is also an impact on this process of this want to, to sell these large homes. You may not have the same type of potential target group that that you might have had a, a decade, a decade and a half ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have a, uh, a growing economy um, along a number of dimensions, but I think um, some of those headline numbers kind of uh, don't really reflect the millennial experience in terms of uh, the labor market. And so their wages have stayed low. They've had difficulties finding kind of navigating uh, consistent long-term employment relationships. And lots of job turnover, um, lots of unemployment spells. And so I think as they have sort of solidified their place in the economy, as it has continued to grow, at least into the early part of this year, um, I think you are really seeing this upward trend among among millennials. I think there's this interesting interaction that, that Dow was pointing out between the all-cash buyers and the, the buyers who need a mortgage. And mortgage standards have tightened considerably in the wake of the Great Recession, um, they're a little bit looser relative to where they were in 2010 or 2011, but not dramatically so. And there's still a huge amount in terms of uh, documenting of income and assets, um, which can be difficult for millennials who don't have as long of a track record um, of, oh, yeah. of steady incomes. And so, yeah. and, and so I think that, that some of this is really a function of the mortgage market. And if the mortgage yeah. market is more generous and is, allows for larger loans, uh, then those McMansions are going to be scooped up. Now, whether that's a good thing or not is a is a broader question. Um, when you think about how much uh, you know, sort of of a debt burden some of these households are taking on by by buying large and expensive houses. Dal, your thoughts? 
Oh, the mortgage market. Don't get me started. <laughs> it, 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 it has gotten better. Um, but, boy, it's a game of green light, red light. Where, you know, before 2007, you could, you know, you didn't need to document any income or anything. Anybody could get a mortgage, and then it was, that's total green light. And then after 2011, it was total red light. It was, so the people who had a million dollars in the bank couldn't get a mortgage because they didn't have a, a W-2 form for two years in the same company. You know, they changed jobs during the recession that put you out of, out of the mortgage business. So it's gotten a little bit better now. But, um, I mean, the thing is, for the, for the long-term health of the, of the, of the real estate economy, I mean, Ben, wouldn't you agree that it's useful to, to get more people into the market and not block them out? Yeah, certainly. I think as long as they're yep. taking on the, you know, the right amount of risk um, that, that they can bear given their, their income and the risk of, of income fluctuations going forward, for sure. Great having you both with us. Thanks, Ben. Great seeing you. Yeah, thanks. Dal, great to have you on the phone. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Benjamin Keyes from here at the Wharton School, Dal Myers at the University of Southern California. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 